This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth from Forbes. I'm Sam Abual Samad from Guidehouse Insights. And I'm Rebecca Lindland from Rebecca Drives. All right, let's get to it. We're, we're driving. So, uh, Sam, what have you been in? Uh, I got to spend a week with a Lexus LC500 convertible. That sounds mm. tough. Boy, is that a lovely, lovely car. <laughs> um, you know, when I've talked previously about the, the coupe in both its V8 as well as its hybrid forms, you know, the, the, the term I use to describe it, you know, I mean, this is this is a classic grand touring car. You know, it's, it's not... I'll, despite despite its track prowess, and it, it actually absolutely has prowess on the track. Uh, I've driven it at Road America. Um, you know, this is this is a grand touring machine. This is not you know a, a, a super sports car, uh, and you know it's a GT in the the classic sense. You know, like the old Ferrari Daytonas, and you know basically most of the front engine Ferraris. You know that or you know Aston Martins, that sort of car. So it's got a mix of you know, high performance and luxury. It's really something that's designed, you know, for two people to travel long distances at high speed and in great comfort, um, which is, you know, exactly what this convertible is great at. Um, and, you know, and I, I emphasize that two people. It has two back seats. It has seatbelts <laughs> back there. There is absolutely no logical reason whatsoever why Lexus should be putting those in there. And, I think any manufacturer that that does this is just they're being ridiculous. Just stop. Don't bother with the back seats in these cars anymore. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. The, the in the the LC, especially in the convertible. You know, I'm five eleven with the seat in my, you know, proper position. Um, there is no room for legs behind me. You know? uh, so it's, but as a two seater, it's it's fabulous. Uh, you know, it's big and beautiful. Um, and very comfortable to sit in, uh, with the top up, you know, the, the, it's fully lined. It's surprisingly quiet, uh, but you can still hear the, the exhaust note in it, uh, full power top, you know, it's got this fancy mechanism where the rear deck lifts up and the, or the, the back part of the top lifts, folds up and the rear deck lifts up and the whole thing folds down and the thing goes down. It's, it's, it's a, it's a engineering wonder. Um, and. You know, even, you know, as the temperature was getting colder while I had it, uh, you know, when you turn on the heat, it's got uh, little heater vents uh, below the headrest, you know, so it's blowing warm air on the back of your neck while you're driving. Uh, you know, there's relatively little buffeting, uh, you know, if you put the, the windows up, even with the windows down, it's, it's, it's relatively calm in there. There is um, a wind blocker that was in the trunk that I didn't bother to try to install uh you know because you, you frankly don't really need it uh you know and it's it's a fantastic car you know there's just one fundamental flaw with this car the lexus trackpad it is <laughs> it is atrocious um but you know it, it is what it is you know we've we've complained about it you know we don't need to beat that dead horse again um you know it's got lots of power from that v8 engine uh, one one other I guess you know related flaw to that though uh, I found that when I was driving when I was driving with uh, the top down uh, and the sun either up high above me or a little bit behind me uh, the screen also basically was completely washed out uh, there is a, a bit of a hood over the screen with the top up it's fine but with the top down you really you know when the sun is behind you 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 can't really see the screen at all uh, strangely enough. I was able to see the um, the heads up display, which was good, uh, even with my uh, polarized sunglasses on. Um, and slight tangent, uh, I was on a, a call, a tech talk call with uh, some folks from Continental last week, and they were talking about next generation HMIs, human machine interfaces, and things like augmented reality heads up displays, and uh, learned something interesting from that. You know, we've complained uh, vociferously over the years about a lot of cars, particularly German cars with heads up displays that fade to nothing when you're wearing polarized sunglasses. Um, and it turns out that part of the, part of the reason why German automakers in particular never really paid much attention to that until recently. Um, apparently Europeans don't wear polarized sunglasses. They, they wear sunglasses that are not polarized. Why would uh, you do that? I have I no idea. Right. 
Polarized sunglasses are like the, the best. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you've got a German car with a HUD and the, the display disappears when you put on polarized sunglasses, that's why, because they, they never really looked at it. They're start, that's changing now. Um, you know, newer, newer generation HUDs uh, are starting to work better with polarized sunglasses, uh, even from German manufacturers. But, but that's, you know, an aside. But as far as the, the LC500 goes, uh, it, you know, it was fantastic. You know, I love the coupe and I love the convertible version even more. Um, what has happened to Lexus? They, they, they're making these great GT cars in a time when, um, the passion and appetite for GT cars has, has really waned. Why, why? <laughs> not have done this 20 years ago when they were constantly dinged for making boring cars. I know. Uh, well, I mean, they were selling cars, you know, hand over fist 20 years ago. Um, yeah. you know, they, 10 years they ago. Yeah. They, they couldn't, they couldn't sell RXs fast enough. Well, uh, I mean, I guess they did make the SC 300, 400 and the SC 430. That was really, really strange, but uh, they, I don't know. This, this seems like they finally got their act together <laughs> just in time for nobody to care yeah. i think the i think the logic is that because i mean they have been a baby boomer brand i think the logic is that well, baby boomers are moving into retirement now and so they'll want to have this beautiful you know empty nester baby boomers will want to have this beautiful grand touring sedan or a convertible you know with this great driving experience but the reality is that the car's 110 to 12,000, right? It's, it's, yeah, this one was $111,920, including the $1,025 delivery charge. Yeah. So that's pricey. Uh, baby boomers are not retiring as they had hoped ever. to in They're many not cases. Ever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think, die. <laughs> you know, I saw, I saw um, one of our colleagues wrote a great headline. It was like, you know, the LC 500, the best sport car that nobody will buy, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's, I just, I don't think that Lexus has really adapted uh, to, to the demographics in an appropriate way, like retire, you know, again, like baby boomers who are retiring, very few of them, if they can afford to buy that car, but they're still, uh, they're still very active in their grandchildren's lives. They're still very active in, you know, if, if they are retired, they're not abandoning their families per se, you know, and, and just going to a retirement community in Arizona never to be seen again. So I think that, I think this is part of it. And, and again, if you're spending that kind of money on a vehicle, this is not your only car. So, but I do feel like, you know, that they, they maybe have, have, um, have misunderstood the marketplace a little bit. Because it is, it's an incredibly beautiful car. Um, but, and I wonder sometimes if they, if it would have been almost better as a Toyota in that, you know, at least Toyota has that, you know, you know when you think about like the Supra, there's a track appeal there, there's a sportiness and, and maybe not making it a hundred and something thousand dollars. I don't know. I just, it's, it's such a good vehicle. It shows what Lexus is capable of it, of, but you're absolutely right, Dan. It's not. It's really not who is that buyer who are yeah. they well and that's my question you know it's it's no more expensive than um an eight series or uh an s you know the the s class equivalent but it's also not an eight series or right. an S well, class, uh, you know like i mean and when you if get I was, if that, i was looking at this i would you know i would look at this and look at an eight series and you know certainly based on the way it looks i would probably go for this you know go for oh, the lexus yeah, over I, the eight series you know i think and it certainly only, drives great yeah the only thing that would really um in, on a personal level i think the only thing that would really make me choose the eight series over the lexus would be the infotainment you know the eight series it's a great yeah. car but it's it's a a lot <laughs> you know yeah this seems you know it's still the the lexus is still very uh you know stylish it's, it's, it stands out but it's more of a grand tourer. It's it's a little little less edgy, uh -huh. in in the right ways. Um, but you know, I, and I almost wonder if this would have more success if it if it had uh, you know partial hybrid or or EV option. But I, I don't I don't know. I mean, I, I think that 
It's well, a, well, the coupe it's is a, available as a hybrid, so yeah. you can get and and it wouldn't surprise me if they did a hybrid version of the convertible at some point. Yeah, but yeah, but the it, eight series, but the eight series is a very different. I feel like the driving experience and the eight series that is all about passion and engagement and yes, right? Like and yeah. I mean, Dan, I, I think um, you know, Sam, you're right. It's a it's a grand touring. The the LC the LC five hundred is a grand touring, so, you know experience whereas the eight series is still like i mean that's that's a much tighter I mean, suspension I, I, that's you know, I, would, I would say i would say the eight is very much a gt as well it you is know, but it, there's i don't know i found it to be more fiery and yeah you know it, it, it I, has a, it's it's got a much more forward much more sporty personality yes. or at least it, it can depending yes, on exactly. how it's, it's equipped and and how you you know which modes you select so right exactly so no i mean but but and sam i'd love to see your pictures of the lc 500 because it is just gorgeous and i bet your pictures make it even better <laughs> thanks uh yeah no it was it, it was definitely a fun week to to spend with that and you know even without being able to see the screen you know it was fine because i was looking down the road anyway yeah <laughs> uh, yeah and and i took it out you know around some of the some of the back roads uh, around here, you know, such as they are, um, and just just had a lovely time with it. So, what about you, Rebecca? What did you have? So, I had the 2020 Hyundai Ionic Electric. This is the Ionic comes in three different powertrains. There's a hybrid version with a gas engine. Um, there's a PHEV version, so the plug-in hybrid version, and then this one was the all-electric version. And I have to say, I was really excited to get in it because I. Uh, I felt like I, uh, you know, I had had such a good experience with the Hyundai Kona EV that I thought, oh, good, I can't wait to try this. This is it's, it's a it's a four door hatchback, so it's not a quote utility vehicle, um, but of course we love hatchbacks because they're still very functional. So I was really pleased. I was like, okay, great, this is a, a fantastic opportunity for comparison, but it wasn't the same. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely not the same. I mean, the the, uh, the Ionic has uh, it's got a hundred kilowatt battery, one hundred and thirty four horsepower, uh, electric motor. It's and and you really feel it. Like it, it is just it is not nearly as um, as I don't want to say powerful, but as as engaging. Really, well, it's not Kona, as powerful. It's, it's not it's, as powerful, right? Yeah. The Kona has one hundred and fifty kilowatt. 201 horsepower there's definitely a difference and so what i kind of took my 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 short cheap takeaway is you know not all electric vehicles are created equal and the ionic it's you know it's less expensive for sure i so if that's a priority for you then the ionic makes sense um it doesn't have nearly as much range it maxed out at 170 uh the kona maxes out at about 258 so it's a very different vehicle and the pricing reflects that. So it's appropriate. So, you know, if, if you're, if you're constrained by budget and you have a very specific budget that you're looking for, you can get into the Ionic for high twenties after the federal tax credit. The other thing that was interesting to me was that the Kona is available in 11 States, but the Ionic is only available in 10 and I didn't know why that was. Um, I don't know if that's just an anomaly on the website, but how that was kind of, I, I want to explore that a little bit. Yeah, more. I mean, so. it, typically Hyundai, Hyundai's been selling their plugins only in the Zev states. Right. Um, and I'm not sure why there would be a difference between the Kona I, and the Ionic. I it know. It may just it, be something that, that ha, you know, it might be a, an error on the website. Right. That's what I was thinking too. I just picked it up. Um, I just, I looked at it about an hour ago um, before we came on the air. So I want to delve into that a little bit more, but you know, it's what I, what I, I took away from it was that, you know, if you, if you don't want a utility, if you do still want an EV, this is a priority for you, then this is a great first experience with an EV. I, you know, it, it has, um, the same type of charging it's a for a, on a 220 volt you can get six hours uh for a, a full charge dc fast charge you've got about an hour about 45 to 50 minutes 55 minutes for an 80 percent charge so 
you know, a lot of the ownership experience is the same. I, you know, I plugged it into mine overnight and and it charged up just fine. So it's, you know, it's good. It's just, I was, I was disappointed in the lack of engagement that I had with the vehicle. It felt like I was driving a, an inexpensive compact sedan as opposed to driving the future. Well, but you were. <laughs> well, exactly. But, but I was hoping that the EV would have more engagement than it did. You know, that instant torque yeah. that I loved in the Kona really just wasn't there as much um, because it's a different, it's, it's a different, um, the specifications are different on it. So, right. Well, you know, when, when Hyundai launched the Ionic a few years ago, you know, they, they talked about this, you know, we, we asked them because it, you know, it came out not far, not long after, or pretty close to the same time as the Bolt. And, you know, we, we asked them, you know, why its range was so, so short. And in fact, um, it got, uh, it got better for 2020. Uh, they, you know, they did a mid-cycle update this year, right. uh, which boosted the battery up to 38 kilowatt hours from 27 uh, and took the range from uh, about 130 miles, 127 miles, I think, to 170. Uh, and we asked them why they did that. <clears throat> and the, the explanation they gave at the time was, you know, they and this this is actually a very similar explanation to what Honda gave for the Clarity Electric. You know, they were going for optimal efficiency. So they were trying to find the right. best balance of efficiency and range, you know, to give a usable range, but really to focus on efficiency because you know, when you go to a higher capacity battery with more range, you know, it's going to be heavier, which is going to hurt your efficiency. Um, and so they, they really focused on that efficiency part of it, you know, to the detriment of, of range, uh, you know, and depending on your use case, you know, what your, what your, you know, your lifestyle is, you know, the 127 or even 170 miles might be more than adequate. And I think that if you're, you know, for example, if you're in the market for something like, uh, you know, the standard Nissan Leaf, not the plus, uh, you know, that one's only got 150 miles of range, you know, here you have 170. Uh, I think that, to be honest, I think the interior of this is, you know, probably a little better than the, the Leaf, uh, you know, arguably the design, I think is, is better than the Leaf. Uh, you know, it's certainly a very practical car. You know, it's got right. lots of cargo space and, and room. It's got, you know, the, the Ionic has more passenger space, particularly in the back seat than the Kona does. So, you know, if what you're looking for is a, an EV, an affordable EV that, you know, can carry four or five people more comfortably than you can in the Kona, uh, you know, this is this may be a better choice for you than the Kona. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, I you're, think you're right. The Kona is a lot more fun to drive. Right. I think that was my you know, I was I was coming off of that Kona, so excited about it. And then I was kind of like, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> so, you know, I, but, but with all that being said, and you're absolutely right, Sam, like this is, it's a different consumer. It's a different clientele potentially. Uh, this is, I think this is a great vehicle if you are still commuting, you know, within, and, and that 170 is going to give you a couple of days worth of range. I, I think that it's a great around town. I did have a better experience. I was so thankful for the listener who mentioned uh, the, the paddle shifters uh, and the regenerative braking because I was able to engage that and play around with that and and have a better experience when it comes to the regenerative braking and, and the one pedal driving and such. So that so thank you for that pro tip because that was fun to play with. So yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Um, and I was also going to ask you. So did you you have a chance to try the fast charging or um, did you? You just know, I didn't home? need to. Um, yeah. It was I. I got well. You know, all of our listeners. There, there, there are family too, but I ended up having to spend a couple of days with my mom, which I'm very thankful for, but I didn't get a chance to drive it as much as I would have liked to have done. So I, the person that normally uh, takes care of her wasn't able to come. So I was commissioned, which is fine. But so yeah. I, I wanted to, my, my, I had every intention because it did have a charge point, uh, card with it yeah. for the opportunity to charge it. So I apologize to my you know, to our audience here that I didn't get a chance to do the fast charging, but that is certainly on my list of things to do uh, well, with the next so, and, when, and when you charged it at home, um, it's still just 110 or did you, did you weasel? I just did 110. Uh, I don't, right. Yeah. I, so my plan is to get us, uh, you know, a level two charger at some point, but no, I, I just did 110, yeah. just plugged it in and it was great overnight and didn't have any problems with it. So 
you know, there's that 170 range. I mean, the other thing that I found was um, when I first, you know, even just a couple of months ago, I remember getting an EV and being like, oh, shoot, that's only 100 miles. Yikes. But you get used to it so quickly. I'm like, oh, good, 100 miles. Great. I'm not driving 100 miles today. <laughs> like, right. it's funny how you can kind of, you know, you can get into um, that range anxiety disappears very quickly once you start using the vehicle and once you start driving with it. And and again, you know, think about even though 110 is not ideal, the trickle charging, it can take a long time. But, you know, I got home at seven o'clock one night. I plugged it in. I'm not leaving my house at 7 a.m. You know, I left right. my house about nine. And so, you know, and yeah, it's kind of a pain to roll up that the charger and do all that stuff. But it's not a big deal. Like it's it's something that, you know, again, it, definitely look at putting in a level two charger. If you buy this vehicle or if you lease this vehicle, you're going to set it up for more permanently than we set it up with, you know, our one week right. test experience. Right. So, but, you know, all that being said, I think the interior is really nice. Um, the SE has an eight inch touch touchscreen display, the limited, which is what I had um, bumps that up to a 10 and a quarter uh, touchscreen. And, you know, overall, it's just, it's, it was a very easy vehicle to live with. It's very familiar. It's comfortable. The ergonomics are really nice on it. That infotainment system is great on it. Apple CarPlay, Android Auto, and there's a lot of safety features on it. So, you know, there's a lot of, of really good things about this vehicle. It's just that it it is more of a utilitarian EV mm -hmm. experience rather than the more engaging Kona experience that I had. So those yeah. are kind of the, the two big differences. But it's also like $7,000 difference in price, too. So right. Oh, um, it was cold last week. So how did it do with running like heated seats, uh, heater, that kind of stuff? Did that yeah, so the heated seats were great. You know, again, like I, because I mean, they really have thought this out. So the HVAC, you really don't have to use as much because you've got a nice toasty heated seat. Yeah. And did you, did you set it? So, cause I, I played with this and I mentioned it last week with the bolt. Um, I couldn't figure out how to get it to condition the precondition the interior. I didn't download the app. So yes. I, you I could didn't probably do that through the app, but yeah. um, did you, did you do any of that? Like set it up so that it, it preconditions? I did not. Okay. I've, I've done things. that in the past. Um, yeah. In fact, I did it last year when I had the Kona EV. Um, I, I set it up. I had some some meetings that I had to go to, and it was during a particularly cold week. So I, I preconditioned it to, to heat the interior while it was still plugged in, which was great. You know, yeah. get in, you get in the car. <laughs> it's already nice and warm. Um, you know, and, you know, raising the temperature takes a lot more energy than it does to maintain the temperature. Right. And. You know, so, you know, if you if you do have, you know, an electric vehicle and you live somewhere where it gets cold or hot for that matter, you know, where, you know, Absolutely. You know in the summertime, um, you know, take advantage of that that preconditioning capability that pretty much every modern EV has now. You know, in, in many cases, you know, if you own the vehicle, you can usually do it through an app. Uh, in a lot of cases, like with Hyundai's, uh, you know, they have support for uh, Amazon. Uh, oh, the skills. The skills, that's the word I'm yeah. looking for, yeah. And so if you have Echo devices in your home, you know, you can tell it to warm up your car and, you know, set the temp you can set the temperature and just do that with a voice command from inside the house, you know, before you're ready to leave. Uh, and, you know, a number of other manufacturers are doing that now too. So it's, it's definitely worth taking advantage of that because it won't, that heater won't eat nearly as much into your range that way uh, as it otherwise would. Yeah. Well, and that was uh, so. It's interesting to sort of compare and contrast your experience with the um, the Ionic EV, and it, it, uh, we're at this point now where there's a lot of choice in EVs. Yes. Like, not as much as I want, but you know, you, even just among uh, Hyundai and Kia, you could do the Kona that has that you know more forward personality that we all love, um, or you can do the Ionic, or um, there's the Nero, um, and we can you can jump out to now other similarly priced EVs like I was driving, which was the Bolt. And, yes. Um, I really loved the Bolt. And I talked about it last week. And it's funny, after I talked about how GM should put that powertrain in everything and make it available for swaps, that's exactly what they did. Obviously, they're listening. <laughs> yeah. They, they, 
they want any more good decisions come to me let me know um but they they released that uh bolt powered um k5 blazer which is just super cool but it's it's basically the bolt powertrain uh because the bolt is a really well done ev uh it's the same thing that you found with the ionic it's easy to live with it's um really pretty simple to use it's got good space inside it's it's great to drive um, and it has actually even better range. It's, it's range was like 200, around 250, uh, ish. I used the heater and that was, you know, kind of prompting my question. Um, boy, did that range drop. <laughs> it, 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 it eats a bit, you know, not, not anything to cause worry, but it's just, you know, I, I took, would take it with a full charge and just go, you know, do 10 mile round trip and it would, it would have lost quite a bit, which is fine. Cause it has the, the, the sort of built in buffer, but, uh. That was that was interesting to sort of observe. Um, charging experience wise, so um, this was the first time I used uh, a, a charging like an uh, the charging service. So I, I I got a call from the fleet guys. They said, "Hey, the bolt needs to be in main tomorrow. Please make sure it's fully charged." And I'm like, "Oh, oh gosh. okay, <laughs> um, it's going to take two days to fully charge from where it's at." on a 110 outlet with, you know, extension cords into the backyard and, and whatever. So <laughs> I was like, hang on, it's got a charge point. I think I had a charge point or an EV go card in it. So locally we have the commuter rail station and they have 1772 chargers there. So I just took it there and put it on a level two and that reduced the, the charging time. And so it was really interesting just sort of, using that gas station model of charging in a, in a way like, Oh, I need to go refuel the car. Where's the nearest station. Right. And, um, yeah. That experience is not, not there yet. <laughs> well, and that, and that's what, you know, we've talked, we talked about this earlier this year, you know, GM's deal, uh, deal with uh, EV go to install DC fast chargers at places where people are going anyway. Um, you know, so I, mean, I think it sounds like what you were using was level two chargers, two forty yep. volt chargers. Yep. You know, they're putting 480 volt chargers or 400 volt chargers, you know, places like grocery stores, you know, so in a half hour, you can be fully charged up, you know, while you're shopping for your groceries. Right. Uh, and that, so that makes a ton of sense because yeah. that was my concern was this is cool. I'm glad it's here. If it weren't, a, you know, a global pandemic, I guarantee you, I would not have been able to just waltz in there and put the thing on the charger for four hours or five hours, however long it took. Um, you know, I paid for the parking too, which was like four bucks. It's not a big deal, but it's still, and the, char so, the charging was free. So that was nice. You didn't um, have a DC fast charger. No, there was no fast charger. And I don't, the bolt, the bolt supports 50 kilowatt fast 50 charging. Kilowatt. Okay. Yeah. So that would have been better. It would probably would have cut it down to what, a couple of hours to fill it up. Uh, uh no, yeah. But, even uh, if you were doing it all the way from like near zero, it'd probably take a, a little more than an hour. Oh, okay. That's, that's about an hour and a half. Okay. Actually, one of the questions, one of the listener questions we have uh, later addresses that. So we can, we can come back to that. Okay. So yeah, that's the experience with the, the bolt that uh, I thought was, was really, it's interesting and varied still, you know, and if you wanted to, to actually use it, it's good to know that you can, you know, the, the, the charge point or charge way or EV go, there's a lot of different ways you can find different chargers. When I looked at the charge point site too, it, I had to know, the area as well mm. because like knowing where they were directing me i was like oh that that is not that's not a charger i'm going to be able to use you know it's like behind a fence locked in somewhere versus um i knew that these were at the uh the commuter rail station so yeah i think all of that all of those logistical uh Issues are improving, though, you know, with every iteration. I mean, I don't think that, you know, I don't think anybody's kidding themselves. Having an EV is different than having a gas engine. It just is. Yeah. And so, you know, but there is also significant resources that are going towards making that ownership experience more convenient, more seamless, uh, more familiar uh, if you will. So I think that we've got a long way to go, but I also think, you know, I don't want anyone to interpret our discussion as a criticism of charging because 
we're using 110 at home, it's, it's just, it's, they're observations. And, and, you know, somebody said, you know, please get yourself a, a, a level two charger. And I'm like, well, oh, you know, and, for, for, well, <laughs> and they, and they, they couch it in such a way that, because that's a more realistic um, ownership experience. I'm like, it's not actually, because a lot of people don't have a place to put a level two charger yeah. and you know it can be very very expensive to run well, and if you if you rent you, you don't necessarily have that choice either there's a lot of people that rent yeah right, or, and, exactly. and even even if you own you know if you uh, you know in a lot of cities you know sing, even single family homes don't necessarily have a driveway and a garage a lot of people right. rely on street street parking exactly and so you know having access to public charging somewhere is going to be crucial to making this mainstream. Right. And I think our experiences are actually more reflective of of a, of a, what is happening today, not necessarily what will happen in the future, but certainly what will happen today. So I think that your experiences Dan are really interesting. Um and again it's we're not criticizing. We are ex we're just giving our experience. It's not it's it's just this this is what we faced when we went to charge. Would a level two charger at home fix all that? Sure. But that's not the reality for so many people. And so I think that, you know, you're absolutely right. There's so many choices that we have now, which is really exciting to see. Uh, but we still have to, I, I, I don't think that the mainstream buyer is totally there yet. And so it's our job to say, this is what your experience is going to be especially if you don't have a level two charger at home, which is why I always preface it. If you can put one in, please do. It'll save yourself a lot of hassle. But right. if you can't, that's not a hundred percent barrier to ownership. Like it really may have even been a while ago when it would take, it would take two, three and four days to charge this thing. You know, there yeah. are other opportunities out there for charging. Well, and it was, that's my little rant. That, sorry. No, no. I mean, <laughs> and I think those were the choices that I made, you know, it was, um, it, it's nice to have the option available. You know, for me, I'm not using all of its range every day, so I can just pop it on the, the 110 and, and it'll top up enough and it, it'll be fine. But knowing that I really needed it to be fully charged in a, in a short period of time, right? Uh, I had the option to go plug it into a charger. And, I, and we had a pretty lively discussion on Twitter about this a few days ago um, with some, some folks and really, uh, it, it sort of boils down to the charging experience isn't quite there for everyone but Tesla. And one of the smartest things that Tesla has done and one of the real big values to the, the company overall is their charging network, the way it Absolutely. integrates with the cars, the way you don't have to worry, you know, like, like is this thing going to have the right plug? Is it going to work? You know, cause they're the cars actually phone home, um, if the charging, if the supercharger isn't working correctly and they, they alert so that they can get repaired. And so the charging network for Tesla is generally, it's widespread. It's super easy to use. It's in good repair. Uh, most of the know, time. Most yeah, of the time. Yeah. Of the time. <laughs> um, so that's, that's all really important. And, you know, like, yeah, I had to go and I, like, I had the, the, charge point card or the evgo card so that was actually pretty easy you know you just hold it up to the kiosk and it unlocks and you just plug it in so that was interesting to experience as well but then i had to go fight with the parking <laughs> like the the parking machine in the in the parking garage oh right so yeah like we had to put the license plate in and right yeah. i had to do like two different transactions and that one wouldn't take my card because it couldn't read the mag strip and it didn't have a chip reader and i'm just like come on um <laughs> you, you know so like that experience and and that's the thing that uh yes it's all available for you now you don't have to do you don't have to buy a tesla um to to have an ev and you know charging is available it's be more charging infrastructure is being built but it really takes commitment and as a consumer like if you if i'm if i had the whole family in the car and we were going somewhere i would be so livid just having to deal with that frustration you know, as it, as it was, it was it was still kind of a pain, and it was like oh, I'm losing more time on this. And I thought I could just drop it off at the garage and be done. And now, you know, it's just a hassle. Um, so that's got to get better. And and I and I think that that's you know part of the reason that people buy Teslas isn't it doesn't have anything to do with the car. It has to do with how easy it is to use. I mean, the, the car will route you to the supercharger. 
if if you know if your route changes you know, so so it takes some of that that route planning out of it and and you know that it's going to to work and, and be reliable and the customer experience is really important so it just and, it drove and to it be home. to be fair you know most evs um you know do have you know it can route you to chargers as well you know they right. they have that uh you know the point the chargers and the points of interest in the nav systems right. um and you know the process the you know the process is about to get a whole lot simpler for a lot of people as well. Uh, you know, there's a standard called plug and charge, um, which is now being implemented by charging network providers and, you know, the companies that do the, the backend stuff of connecting this, which basically, you know, it, it's, it takes a lot of the friction out, you know, the things that you were just describing will go away um, over, you know, in the coming months and, and years, uh, because, you know, they're doing things like you know, essentially one of the things that enables is roaming. You remember, you know, not so many years ago, you know, with your cell phone, you know, you and if you wandered off somewhere where your particular cell provider did not have a tower and, you know, if you were on, if you were a Verizon customer and, you know, suddenly you were making a call through a Sprint tower, you know, you were paying roaming charges and that has all gone away. You know, they've they've basically connected all these networks, um, you know, so that you, you're no longer paying roaming charges. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that's going to happen. That's happening with EVs. Um, you know, the, the Ford Mustang Mach-E is one of the first that implements this plug and charge standard, uh, you know, through the Ford pass app that's built into the, the sync system. Um, and also through electrify America and green lots. So, when you pull up to one of those charging stations and plug in your car, it will the car will authenticate itself with the charger and the network behind that charger, and it will just automatically uh, bill your Ford Pass account. So you you have a, a credit card, you know, or card, you know, a sign, a payment method linked up to your Ford Pass account, and you just go to a station plug it in and go and you don't have to mess around with any of the NFC cards or any of this other right. nonsense. It'll just work. And, you know, that's, you know, we're going to see that happening across the board with new EVs that are coming to market. Um, you know, now that, now that that standard has been um, finalized. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really one of the sort of final barriers to, to getting it uh, wider EV adoption. You know, the cars are there, but the product is good. It's how you refill the batteries that still needs some work. And I, this is not a complaint. This is more observations like, okay, this, this experience, and I'm sure on, you know, in some places it's better than others. And here it wasn't bad. It was just, it took a little bit of, of head scratching. And, and as you get used to it, you know, once you do it a couple of times, it becomes much easier. You're not um, confused by the process, but the first few times it can be confusing. Um, and most people don't go on super long trips with their EVs. Uh, so it's, it's really, these are observations. And once it becomes as easy as a gas car or as nearly as easy as a gas car, it's going to be a lot easier to make that switch. Um, and, it, you know, it, it just takes a little while to get there. <laughs> and I know they're working on it. Um, and, and you've, you've had to really combine a few different, you know, companies, you know, Tesla is the only company that's sort of, well, not the only, but Tesla's pretty vertically integrated with, you know, they own the charging network and all of that stuff. Ford and GM don't. So well, has, has any deals. manufacturer ever owned a gas station? You right. know what I mean? And that's, that's yeah. the key. Like, no, no they, they haven't, right. but those two industries grew up in parallel. And, Absolutely. And I, I think we need to mirror that and say EVs and charging and they will because they kind of have to, but those industries need to grow in parallel too. So um, there's a mutual benefit. I, they they all realize it. They're all working on it. Um, so it, it'll get there. You know, I mean, think about how many different like audio players and music apps and stuff we used to have. And, and now that's basically you just go to one. <laughs> you know, so, same, okay. same kind of thing. So I think that's about it for the garage. I don't, I don't yeah. want to babble anymore about this because we have questions to get to. Yeah, so we've got uh, we've got quite a few questions actually. Let's start off with um, actually a question from the last show that we didn't get to from Gareth Thomas. 
Gareth asks uh, or says, you know, I really enjoy your show and look forward to each new episode. Thank you, Gareth. Uh, however, I'm one, I'm more of an old car person than I am uh, a new car person. So I have a couple of historic car sales questions. Is there a good way of finding MSRP information? And I presume that he's referring to the original MSRP for old vehicles. Um, I've been able to find a few cars listed here and there, but nothing easily searchable. So uh, for the first part of this, uh, I did do a little digging around and actually uh, state of Michigan, uh, and I suspect most other states have something similar, depends on how they charge for their uh, licensing or for, you know, license plates and, and registration. Uh, but state of Michigan, part of the registration fee is based on the original price of the car. So on, and we'll put this link in the show notes, uh, michigan.gov, there's um, a link to uh, this this particular one is for new car MSRPs from 1987, and they you know they have similar documents for other other model years. Uh, and uh, I picked the the 87 because the second part of the question gets into that. But it lists all the original base MSRPs for all the cars that were available in the 1987 model year in the U.S. Um, so the second uh, part of the question is he has a 1987 Jaguar XJS with the lovely V12. Uh, what were its competitors when new? Uh, Porsche 930, BMW 635 CSI. What offered similar performance and value? I feel like I'm missing something. While not sold in the U.S., the Ferrari 412 has a lot of the same features. V12 up front, 2 plus 2 seating, and controversial styling. The Ferrari is more powerful and slightly faster than the Jag, but presumably costs quite a bit more than the XJS is 37000 Which brings us back to the cost uh, when new question. So. Uh, you know, I, you know, did a little thinking about this, you know, a couple of um, ones, I think that were clearly more competitive. I, I don't think the 930 was really a competitor to the XJS. Mm -hmm. no. um, you know, that was, you know, 911 turbo. Uh, 635 CSI. Yeah, to some degree. Uh, yeah. You know, in those days, it was still just inline six cylinder only, no V12. Um, but the Mercedes-Benz SEC and SLC from that era, I think, you know, we're the big coupes were definitely uh, XJS competitors. And of course, the, the old school Aston Martin V8 and, and Vantage of that era was another one, although probably a lot more expensive than the uh, than the Jag. Uh, any thoughts from the two of you? Um, well, so the XJS was in production for so long that its competitors changed. Yeah. <laughs> um throughout its life i i think yeah i mean it started it launched in the early 70s and finally went away in the early 90s so it was about 20 years i think yeah um i do think that uh if you wanted to compare it to a porsche the 928 is more uh, yeah that's a good uh, one i forgot that uh, one's competitor or um and you know ferraris i thought the 412 was sold here but um i, I was a kid then so i, I <laughs> Definitely the Mondial, but that's a different kind of car and yeah. a lot more expensive. So I don't know. Rebecca, well, and, you're down and, in, in... and any Ferrari is going to be a lot more expensive to maintain than yeah. Jaguar, but not necessarily any more problematic. You're down in Greenwich. Like the, you, all this stuff is like daily drivers down there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I was looking actually to see also because I, if I've misinterpreted the question, it's, Part of it is about finding out what the price was on it as well, right? Am I? Yeah. Um, so you know, well, I'll put that Michigan uh, website on there. Yeah, because I was looking. I remember I was doing some research for something else on Carfax, and they actually had the original MSRP uh, of the vehicle. Now it was it was newer, so I I just did a quick search on. Um, they only go. They went back to two thousand three for a for a Jag. And I don't see at quick glance, I don't see the original price on it, but it might be there. I just haven't had a chance to look through, but um, yeah. So I think that there's, because Sam, when you, when you put that Michigan website up, I, I was wondering if there's, um, if there was other more nationwide uh, sites like a, a Carfax or something, but so anyway, so I'm catching up here. Sorry. 
<laughs> well, you know, I think, um, you know, I, I also looked at places like KBB, for example, you know, you can find uh, used car values there. But unfortunately, their listings only go back to early 90s. Um, right. So it doesn't go it doesn't go back quite this far. Um, you know, other sources, you know, I would check, you know, probably Haggerty. Yeah, that's that um, was my first that thought would be, too. That'd be a good one for sure. In terms of you know what he said, what he comments here, I you know the um, and this may not be a priority at all, but I do think that potentially while the Ferrari um, is certainly going to cost more possibly, but it could also increase in value eventually. Uh, yeah, but not a Mondial. <laughs> yeah. well, I guess uh, no, if I mean comparing... that's it. Right? It depends on which one it is, and the same thing with Aston Martin. You know, yeah. um, but also I think I, when, when did Ford buy Aston Martin? Was that in the nineties? 89, uh, I think. 89. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, so I think that anytime that you're looking at these older vehicles, you have to keep in mind ownership, uh, you know, who, who was owning, who owned the brand at the time, um, because that's going to impact what vehicle they built, you know, Aston's were owned by Ford. And I think that that may not have been the ideal. Well, Jaguar, <laughs> when did Ford buy Jaguar? Was that 98 as well? Or was that yeah, sometime in it was that somewhere thing, around 90, the whole PAG 90, group, 90. Yeah. right? The um, um, premium auto group. Was yeah. that, within the span of a few years, they bought Volvo, Jaguar and Aston Martin. Yeah. And Volvo, I think was the sort of the last in, in 98. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely think that the XJS probably has an analog over at, at Aston, um, regardless of sort of ownership. You know, they did kind of keep uh, keep the companies running with their, their different product lines. Um, you know, and it was an expensive car, but I, you know, I, I'm trying to trying to really just conjure up um, what other sort of GTs there were. At that point, because back when it originally debuted, you, you could have certainly competed with the Jensen Interceptor. Uh -huh. um, but the Interceptor, I don't think, made it into the 80s. Uh, <laughs> other stuff, too, like uh, maybe Bristol's, but Bristol's are a lot more expensive. Well, like, yeah. And, and also, I think that there is, I mean, <laughs> there is an, an upkeep question, too, you know, getting, I mean, it's, you know, I, I think, I don't know, maybe I'm putting my practical hat on too much, but, you know, you can get very, very exotic and you can't find parts for it, you know? So Yeah. Well, the there, great thing about the Jag is back in the day, like, yeah. So, and that's funny when you talk about um, uh, the, the sort of increase in value of something like the Ferrari. And I just, you know, I made the flip comment there, right? The Mondial doesn't really appreciate like Ferraris do. Um, sure. But the, the XJS is basically got like an anchor tied to its value. Nobody wants those things. They're, um, they're lovely cars, but they have that reputation as being temperamental and they're not that bad. Uh, but people in the eighties and early nineties didn't quite get it, especially the V12s. <laughs> the, you know, it was like alien technology. And so the, the common, very common solution was, we'll take that out and put in a 350 with a carburetor, which I, there was like this company called Jags that run, that like <laughs> they made kits to do it and it horrifies me because it's such an inelegant solution. Although the small block is fantastic. Uh, you know, the small block will probably, you'll probably end up with better performance, more reliability. Um, and it'll be a hell of a lot cheaper to maintain. Yeah. But it's not a V12 Jag, you know, that's true. <laughs> and, and like Bosch fuel injection is not that complicated. You, people are just lazy about learning it. Um, so yeah, uh, I don't know if we answered that question or just drove around the cul-de-sac. <laughs> well, I, th but uh, I think Haggerty's a good a good resource. Yeah, yeah. and you know the uh, I just pulled up the uh, eighty-five Mondial uh, in concourse condition. Uh, according to Haggerty, it's worth about forty thousand dollars. Yeah, so, well, an XJS you can get a really nice XJS for like fifteen. Yeah, and you know uh, a tune-up on an eighty-five Mondial will probably cost you about <laughs> twenty about twenty thousand yeah. dollars annually. <laughs> It's an engine out service. I mean, it, yeah. it, the, those Ferraris, like the 308s, the Mondials, the stuff, like a cheap Ferrari is great if you're a DIY person and if you have the space and the, the patience. You have a garage and a lift and everything. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, Because they do, you know, a lot of the stuff is engine out services, but it it comes out easy. It's designed to be serviced. It's just, uh, it's not, you know, it's complex. Is it designed to be serviced at home though? No. Right. (laughs) It all depends on where you live. You got to have commitment. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, All right. All right. Next one up. Uh, Russ Doffer. Uh, Question for you to maybe include in a podcast someday. In the old days, car grills. Uh, were almost all usually horizontal shapes of some sort, sitting above the front bumper line. There, uh, there might be a modest louver below the bumper as well. Lately, though, it seems like grills are both larger and often uh, lower or split vertically into one horizontal bit uh, above bumper line and another below or else integrated into the bumper. Uh, see the RAV4 as a poster child for the split or dual air and take a look. What's up with that? Do radiators sit lower now? Are radiators larger? Or is it just all styling, etc.? So I think there's a combination of things going on with the grills. First of all, there's pretty strict pedestrian crash regulations that are dictating the shape of a the front of a vehicle. They tend to be more square. Uh, but also there's, I don't think that the, and, and Sam, you're much more uh, qualified to answer this question, but I don't think that the functionality of the radiator has changed all that much. But the other thing is that a grill now is also expected to support a whole variety of sensors and cameras and and do really multitasking not just serving as the um as you know the a functional purpose for the radiator it's also now suddenly our eyes and ears into what is in front of the vehicle so i think that there's a combination of things that are going on there both a design and functionality and a multitasking purpose. Yeah, I, I think too. Uh, we could totally eliminate the upper portion of the grill. Like that's mostly just style. And go look at um, a lot of BMWs. They don't have much opening there. They certainly have active shutters um, because really all of the air comes from the bottom. Most cars are bottom breathers because that's where the high pressure is on the front as you push air out of the way uh it sort of piles up on that lower part of the body so you cut a hole there <laughs> and, <laughs> and that goes into the engine compartment and so most of the air is is done from a you know scooped up from from uh not too far off the road foot or two off the road uh so we don't and you saw this with uh you know cars in the 80s like the taurus where they they hardly had a grill opening because they didn't need it they got every you know all the cooling air they needed from below um, so, uh, it, it's, it's mostly a style issue now, and, um, it does sort of allow them to package those sensors and hide them a bit, although they're not doing such a great job hiding them. Um, you know, you can, you can see like Mercedes with this giant plexiglass piece in the middle. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so right. some, some are more <laughs> elegant than others at hiding the sensors, but it, it's, uh, it's mostly a convention at this point to have a grill. Essentially, um, what we think of as the traditional grill is all about styling. It has almost nothing to do with functionality anymore. Um, you know, it's it's all about creating a, a a visual language that identifies this car as a Genesis or a BMW or a Ford or whatever it might be. Um, you know, most. You know, if you, you know, even with these massive grills that we have today that, you know, talked about, you know, especially with Genesis and, and BMW of late, um, there's usually, you know, as you said, Dan, you know, only a small portion, it's an actual air opening, you know, the rest of it, if you actually look closely, you'll see it's blocked off. There is no airflow through most of that area. You know, I think on the G90, you know, there's a space that's about 12 inches wide by about four inches high. You know, that is an actual air opening. Same thing on the new, the latest Ford Explorer. You know, now, now that, you know, I've seen uh, the, the new Ford, the new Explorer, you know, as a police vehicle, um, you know, it's, it's particularly um, obvious on there, you know, because it's all black. You can see where the opening is. It's a very small opening. There are, there are some exceptions, like, for example, the, the Shelby GT500. Uh, you know, almost all of that area is open because, you know, it's got huge cooling requirements for the engine and the supercharger and everything. Uh, but most of the rest of it is, is blocked off. Um, you know, so it's, it's all about, it's all about design. And as you said, Dan, you know, 
grab most of the air that does come in is grabbed from down below because you don't want that airflow underneath the car for aerodynamic reasons and and you know minimizing lift and everything so they try and grab the air from down low uh and you know the rest of it is just closed off so yeah so it's a design i mean it's the the grill is the face of the vehicle all right next uh joseph marino uh hi everyone just picked up a brand new vehicle and has the auto stop start which shuts the car off when it comes to a complete stop I'm not sure if I like it or not. It's a little annoying, especially in Boston area, stop and go traffic. What are your feelings on it? Would love to get your feedback. Uh, thanks. Keep up the great show. Joe. All right. Well, I think it depends on the vehicle because I think almost all stop starts can be turned off, but it's just no. how hard is that to figure out? Well, that's, yeah. So it's, it depends on the vehicle. I'm going to yeah. just leave it at that. Which ones can't you turn off? Because usually you, you like it has been the case that you can shut off. Stop so stop. It, it depends. Um, you know, with the EPA, with the fuel economy ratings, the way the EPA drive cycles are set up, uh, manufacturers don't actually see a whole lot of benefit in the cycle from auto stop start in uh, because the, the car almost never actually comes to a complete stop. So the engine doesn't shut off. Real world driving, you get a lot more actual benefit in fuel economy because the car does come to a stop, especially in stop and go driving, which is the whole point. Um, you know, and, and stop and go driving, you can get up to about you know eight to ten percent improvement in fuel economy without a stop start. So what's happened? You know, the EPA uh, man, when manufacturers start wanting to put auto stop start in, they went to EPA and said, look, you know. We see the benefit of this you know, on the European driving cycle, but we don't see it on the EPA cycle. And so EPA um, gives them an off-cycle, what they call an off-cycle credit. So if you put auto stop start in a the vehicle, they will adjust the, you know, when, when you do, when they run the tests to get the actual, you know, raw numbers for fuel efficiency, they make some adjustments to that. And one of the credits that they get, you know, so they'll bump up the fuel economy number by a little bit if you have auto stop start. If a manufacturer puts in a shutoff button, EPA makes an assumption that a certain percentage of customers are going to disable the auto stop start. And so there's not going to be as much real world benefit from it. And so they may give you uh, a two or three percent bump in your fuel economy if you number your your label number if you have auto stop start with a shutoff button. If you don't put in a shutoff button so that it's forced to do it all the time, they give you more credit. So it depends on the manufacturer. If the manufacturer wants more of a credit for auto stop start, they will they may not put in the shutoff button. So that's why How can you find out? How can you find out what if there's a shutoff button? Yes. Uh, you just have to check the particular car you're interested in. Uh, so it, you know, it's it's something that'll be on a given model or not. It's it's not something that'll be optional. Um, you know, so you know, if you right. say a BMW 3 Series, it's either going to have a shut off, a disable button, or not. Um, and uh, you know, some you know, it, I think it depends on depends on you know where what the manufacturer needs to hit as far as their targets and. Um, you know what? You know how many complaints that they've gotten from customers in the past. <laughs> so, uh, Joe, let us know what kind of car it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I will say in Boston, uh, stop and go. There are times where you just don't want that stuff doing its thing. <laughs> For you know, it just makes the car really unpleasant, depending on how much it vibrates and shakes when it starts. Yeah, it depends on the transparency, right? Yeah. That it, a bigger, I found larger engines like an Aston Martin is going to be, a that's, that's an event when the car goes back on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, it depends too on how they've implemented the starter. So I, right. Cause there's less, the e-torque uh, thing, right? Yeah. It's, it's a lot less obtrusive with something like e-torque or um, hybrid, certainly because of the way they start the car. It's, it's much quieter. There's not, you don't have to engage like the, the typical starter with like the Bendix drive and all that, you know, it's, it's uh smoother, to start up that way. Um, and then how they implement it where if you do have the, like eTorque, right, it, it takes off on battery power and then fires the engine once you're underway. So that feels better. And that's one of my complaints is in Boston traffic in particular back in the before times, <laughs> <laughs> you'd, um, 
you'd come to a stop, but then very quickly you'd be like moving again. And so the amount of delay that's programmed into it, and you can't get it perfect for every situation. And maybe it adapts a bit as it, it gets used, but that's the thing that makes you want to shut it off sometimes. It's like it it uh it's just it makes the experience so busy because you're just starting and stopping the engine so much. Right. And right. it saves maybe it saves some fuel, fine. But it's so aggravating. But you know what? Also, Joe, if you have different drive modes, that may also change oh, your experience. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's a good, good right. Thought. So check so check your again, we don't know what kind of car it is. So so check to see if you have different drive modes. That can also help with that stop start experience. Yeah, a lot of times if there's a sport mode, that'll disable the auto stop start, things like that. Right. Yeah. So you can kind of cheat if you don't have an actual disable button. And, you know, I think it, it should be mandatory that you have auto hold with auto stop start so you don't have to keep your foot on the brake. And, and that like, you shouldn't have to keep engaging it every single time. Yeah. Right. Like it's it's like you want the vehicle to learn, how, you know, as some and some vehicles do. They have certain settings depending upon which driver is driving yeah. that vehicle. I guarantee yeah. you those kind of things are regulatory and we just don't know it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Big All brother. Right. Last one, um, and uh, probably the most controversial one. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the new Tesla full self-driving beta they just pushed out to a number of drivers. This really concerns me because we know it's in no way level five ready, and they just put it in the hands of everyday drivers with no specific training skills or certification. And just as an aside, I did not write this letter. <laughs> um, I know this is from uh, Adam uh, Jekowenko. Uh, anyway, it continues on. I know the Tesla owner. I know the Tesla owners who have it are aware and signed up for it. But my problem is, as a non-Tesla driver, I didn't sign up for this. After watching <laughs> just a few minutes of video posted by some users already, it's clear that if drivers didn't intervene on several occasions, there could have been serious accidents. I read that uh, NHTSA is uh, keeping an eye on this program and will have supposedly intervene if if needed. But I just don't understand how something like this is allowed from a private company on public roads without serious government regulations and trained people at the wheel. You know it's only a matter of time before this, the first person is caught sleeping at the wheel while this Tesla plows into another car. I'm sure any victim of this carelessness could sue, but I don't want to win a lawsuit. I want to not get hit by some stupid Tesla. <laughs> wow. Couldn't have said Doesn't it better myself, Adam. What's the matter? You got to die for progress. It's just... Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, I, I think Tesla is being absolutely reckless in putting this out there and promoting it as full self-driving. It is not full self-driving. If you have to keep your hands on the wheel and eyes on the road, like they say you do, you know, I mean, in the disclaimer, when you start it, when you launch it, it says the system may do the wrong thing at the worst possible time. I mean, <laughs> those exact words are in the disclaimer on your screen when you engage it. I think yeah. my disclaimer <laughs> built in when I wake up says the same thing, though. Yeah. <laughs> when i get up every morning i have to accept yes yeah yeah no i, I think you know unfortunately nitsa under the current regime in washington is not going to do anything about this they've completely abdicated abdicated well, their responsibilities when it comes I mean, to automated what, driving what, what is what is we're keeping an eye on it like you're you're Oh, I want to for, for some reason, but your job is to to regulate. Not for some not reason, watch. regulators are not paying any attention to anything that Tesla is doing when it comes to autopilot or or self driving, and I think it's a travesty. Um, but you know, and you know, like like Adam says, none of the rest of us signed up, you know, or opted in to be being part of Tesla's experiment. You know, I think you know putting you know putting this stuff in the hands of average people that haven't been trained. And I will include a link to the latest uh, episode of the Autonocast uh, where Alex Roy talks a bit about his experience. Alex, you know, among the various things he does, he's uh, he works for Argo AI. And one of the things that he did last year after he started was he went through their safety operator training program and he flunked out of it. And Alex is a professional driver. He knows how to drive. <laughs> he did not pass that program that they have at Argo. Um, because you know, it's, it's very stringent, uh, you know, that they, they have, there's a lot of expectations on these safety operators, you know, and I think that, um, you know, what Tesla is doing is, is absolutely reckless and, you know, somebody is probably going to get killed before this is over. Well, there's a reason why commercials always say, you know, professional driver on a closed course. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I mean, it it is. It's it's highly, highly reckless 
this, you know, no specific training skills or certification. That's a real thing. And I think we have to make the distinction from what Waymo is doing because Waymo is using trained you know, drivers. Every with. other AV company is using it, it, trained yes, operators. Exactly. But but I I I felt like I saw some reference to Waymo. It's like these that's not the same thing at all. And so I so this is an issue very specific to what Tesla is doing and and it is. It's highly, highly irresponsible. It's it's crazy. Yeah. Well I think we've we've answered that one I get. <laughs> there you <It's>, go. <laughs> I I definitely agree with all of his points. It's like um the, their system can't even it's only camera based. It doesn't have enough sensing to to do what they're doing. And that's reckless and uh it would be great if some of the regulatory bodies that are set up to regulate could actually do their job. Uh, unfortunately, the only federal authority that has ever called out Tesla on their irresponsible behavior when it comes to autopilot is the National Transportation Safety Board and the multiple investigations they've done of fatal crashes involving autopilot. The problem is NTSB uh, is an investigatory body. They have no um, regulatory or um, enforcement authority. So that's up to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. NTSB makes recommendations. It's up to NHTSA to actually do something about it. So far, NHTSA has done nothing, and that is a disgrace. And yes. Elaine Chow, Secretary Elaine Chow is a disgrace. She should not be uh, Secretary of uh, Transportation. But yeah, enough of politics. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's call that a show. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening and we'll catch you next time. Keep the questions rolling in, write us some reviews and, uh, you know, find us uh, where you find us. All right. Thanks. Tell your friends. All right. Bye. <laughs>